Bismillah, alhamdulillah, salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful, we begin by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Lord of the worlds, and sending our peace and blessings upon the final messenger, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Brothers and sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu, and uh, welcome to Faith Unlocked, um, a new uh, show uh, post Ramadan, um, a fortnightly show where we discuss um, daily life, uh, faith, spirituality, and community affairs and each uh, episode um, is hosted by myself Junaid Ahmed and my co-host and our resident Sheikh, Sheikh Shafi Rahman. Uh, Assalamu alaikum Sheikh Shafi. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. How are you doing? Alhamdulillah. And one of the things that we have uh, for in this uh, show just like we had during the month of Ramadan uh, for the Ramadan Unlock show is that we have a special guest joining us uh, for each of the shows and alhamdulillah this week we have with us a very very special guest and that is imam siraj wahaj all the way from new york assalamu alaikum imam siraj wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah good to see you again it's a real honor to have us uh, have you on board with us uh, for this show jazakumullah khairan for giving up your time to be with us it is my absolute pleasure and my honor alhamdulillah so, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, over the next uh, hour, we'll be engaging in a conversation and discussion with uh, Imam Siraj. Um, and the focus of our uh, discussion today will be around social justice uh, issues um, because of what we are seeing um, in USA um, in particular, um, as well as um, in other parts of the, the, the world. In UK, we're also seeing a lot of um, uh, um, demonstrations and um, concerns raised about um, this issue of uh, race and injustice that is, is happening and this is something that we're going to be exploring with Imam Siraj Wahaj and Sheikh Shafi Rahman but we will also be kind of uh, extending our discussion to some of the wider topics of social activism, da'wah, engaging in society and serving the community something that Imam Siraj Wahaj has been dedicating his life to for over four, 40 years. Um, and uh, alhamdulillah, it's a real honor and pleasure to have us have him um, with us today in this show. If you have any comments, any questions um, for Imam Siraj Wahaj, please post it in the comment section. We will be um, looking at some of those and inshallah, trying to um, pose some of those questions to Imam Siraj. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with Imam Siraj, which um, I guess won't be many out there at all, Imam Siraj Wahaj is a globally recognized Islamic leader of, of the Muslim community, alhamdulillah. He's the Imam of uh, Masjid Taqwa in New York. He's a da'i, he's a lecturer, community activist. He's uh, been in the leadership and he still is in the leadership of almost all of the Muslim organizations in the US, uh, from Muslim Alliance in North America to ISNA, ICNA, MUNA, MSA, all of these organizations. Um, Alhamdulillah. He's, Alhamdulillah, he's uh, often referred to as the Imam of Da'wah in the West. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. With Alhamdulillah. over 40 years um, of experience in, in Da'wah and community service, um, sharing his message and inspiring um, so many people. Uh, anyone who has been in the West, in, in the Islamic scene, and, and um, in, in community, um, uh, organizations would be would, would have grown up um, learning and been inspired by Imam Siraj. So he's he's our Murabbi, he's our leader and our great to have him uh, with us. Um, so Imam Siraj, um, first of all, how are you? Very good and very thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, um, Muawiyah, one of the companions, said, La there's no real experience and a lot of experiences alhamdulillah um stuff that maybe we'll share today and some of my own background and becoming a muslim and the, the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my life is the day i became muslim and there's nothing in my life that comes close to that um one of the great joys of my life is when i married my wife that was a big joy and happiness to me and but the biggest uh, you know you can't even compare is the day I became Muslim, alhamdulillah. 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 And, and uh, just for our viewers, when was that? And you might as well share us, uh, share that experience with you. <laughs> to start us well, um, I have two answers for that, right? 
um, when I was a student at New York University um, at 1968 is the um, time that I joined the then called Nation of Islam. So 1968, I joined, 68, 69, I joined the Nation of Islam. Uh, but in 1975 um, is when I really became a Muslim, what one would call Orthodox Muslim, or following the, the, the practice of Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him. So take your choice. You say 1968, 1975. I leave it up to you. Alhamdulillah. Imam Siraj, we, there's so much to um, discuss with you, but um, due to the current climate and what we're witnessing around us, um, let us first of all begin with this um, issue around social justice. You have been at the forefront in the fight and struggle for social justice um, and anti-racism causes in the US um, right from the beginning. Um, so we just wanted to start off by um, asking you to share your reflection and your thoughts on what we have been witnessing in the US with the killing and the tragic murder of um, George Floyd? You know, really, that's a really a great question. Um, um, I want to first give you some background. I think it's important that people have some background, a little bit of history. And I know that there, there are some Muslims who don't watch movies, but if they were inclined to, to see a movie, I would tell them two movies to see. One of them is called 12 Angry Jurors. 12 Angry Jurors, it came out in 1956. And the entire movie is about 12 jurors and um, in a deliberation room. That's where the whole movie took place. There's no names. Uh, you have juror number one, number two, up until number 12. And they, they have to deliberate um, about a um, inner city youth who was a charge, was charged with murder. In the beginning of the movie, like everybody, oh, he's guilty. We don't even have to spend any time, he's guilty. So I would recommend people to watch that movie, 1956. And um, have you ever heard of Spike Lee? Spike yeah, Lee? yeah, 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 yeah. You've heard of him, right? And he's, yeah. he's a great uh, producer, African-American producer. Someone asked him, what, is, what, is, what makes a movie great? And he said, what makes a movie great is three things. Number one, it should be entertaining. Number two, it should be educational. And number three, it should be inspirational. So these are the three things that you should have. The next movie came out last year. Uh, it's called Just Mercy. Fantastic movie. It's, 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 a, it's, a, true, it's a true story uh, based on a lawyer who was fighting for uh, an innocent African-American man from, from Alabama. So when you study these movies, you learned a little bit about the history. We should ask ourselves the question, what's going on? Why are people all over the world is concerned uh, about the murder of, um, of George uh, Floyd? Uh, because there's been a lot of black people murdered. What makes this one so special that all over America and all over the world, people protest? Here's a man that only the only people knew him, his friends and his family. Now all over the world, everybody's saying the name George Floyd. Why? And the best thing I can say is like this. People say seeing is believing. And I want to go back again. I don't want to maybe take about two or three minutes if you will permit me. Yeah, absolutely. In 1965, one, one of the turning points of the black movement in the United States um, happened in, um, in Alabama. It was a famous march from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery. And it was um, March 7th, 1965. And it started out with 16 Afri six, 600 African-Americans. And why were they marching? Because black people, although they were citizens, and although they had the right to vote, but every time they came to vote, they had to take a literacy te test. And so, um, Junaid, Junaid, yep. can I see you for a second? I'm gonna give you an opportunity. Where are you? I wanna see you. I'm gonna look at your face when I ask you this question. You can see me? I'm gonna, I'm gonna look. Yeah, now I can see you. Yeah. Um, if you I'm gonna give you some money. I'm gonna give you some money right now. I'm gonna give you a, a thousand pounds. Um, from Sheikh Safi Rahman's pocket. <laughs> okay. If if you can 
if you can answer this question, I give you a thousand pounds right now. And this is a question. This question appeared on the literacy, literacy test. In other, in other words, white people didn't have to take a test. You come to vote. You don't have to take no test, but black people had to take a test. And this was the question. Wallahi, if you get it right, I give you a thousand pounds right now. Are you ready? That, that takes the pressure off me because you're not expecting me to answer it. So come to <laughs> you will not, you will not, you will not answer. No one has ever answered the question. You will not answer. Okay, this is the question. Real question. How many bubbles in a bar of soap? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Where's the answer? What's the answer? Exactly. How many bubbles in a bar of soap? How many? Don't know. How many? Of course, nobody knows. And that's the point. The question was, you had to recite the Constitution of the United States of America by heart. So these were the things that stopped black people from voting. And why did they want to stop black people from voting? Because it would give them give them some, some power. So what we have here is some disparity between black people and white people in our country. And I'm just going to give you just one, one example. I'm a researcher. I love the research. If you, you give me a choice to give a speech or research, I would rather research. Right. So I wanted to research the um, life expectancy. And so I, I study all the countries, life expectancy. And when you look at the life expectancy of the United States of America, we're 45th, meaning there's 44 countries that have a higher life expectancy than the United States. And the average life expectancy in the United States is 78 point six years 78.6 years uk is some something similar but that figure is misleading so while that's 45th on on the list of all the countries but if you ask the question what's the life expectancy of a black man in the united states the life expectancy of a black man in the united states is 71.5 years so if they were a country they would be 111th and everything, whatever uh, category you want to use between blacks and white is difference of night and day, whether it's in economy, whether it's in prison, whether it's in education, all of those things. So you have this condition. In addition to that, you have police brutality. Every black person that I know have an incidence with the police, everyone. I give you one example with me, right? I'm I'm a student at New York University, a freshman, and one afternoon I'm I'm making a determination of whether I'm going to class or not because there was going to be a strike, there's going to be a demonstration, so I'm thinking either I'm going to go to class, or I'm going to go home, so I'm standing in in front of my building from 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 my school, and a policeman comes, a white policeman, and says, "Move on," I said, "Sir, I'm I'm a student here," he said, "I told you to move on." And because I hesitated, five police came and they arrested me and took me to the precinct. When I got to the precinct, remember now, I'm at like 18 years old. I go to the precinct, I sit down, they handcuff me and take off the handcuff. One policeman takes out a gun and he puts it on the desk and he said, would you like to go for that? It, every, every black, I, I, I teach my son, son, if they stop you, be cooperative, because I know my son, he gives them back talk. So black people know you can't say nothing to a white police officer, because you can wind up dead. So what happened, this particular case, the same thing that happened in 1965, the, when the police were brutalizing these black people who were protesting, pro, uh, pro, uh, pro, protesting and they were doing it um, you know, peacefully. The police beat them up. But it was caught on camera. And because it was caught on camera and put on TV, everybody was talking about it. Two days later, Martin Luther King Jr. came. It wasn't 600 people, it was 2,500 people. It's called, and first Sunday was called uh, Bloody Sunday. And Tuesday was called Turnaround Tuesday because the judge didn't give them the right to march. So they called, they called it Turnaround uh, Tuesday. March 25th, now they have permission to march. It's not 600 people. It's not 2,500 people. 25 
thousand people. And Martin Luther King Jr., you heard of him, right? Yeah, yeah. Martin Luther King Jr.? Yeah, yeah. You know what, ma'am, you know what the name of his speech was? The name of his speech was, how long, not long. He said, I know everybody's asking the question, how long must we continue doing this? How long? Not long. That was his speech. That was 55 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now we have the same problem. This time, George Floyd, it was caught on camera. You see, seeing is believing. Mm -hmm. I give you one example, Sheikh. You know the very famous hadith, uh, the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, says that Allah has angels. And the angels, they go about seeing what the slaves of Allah is doing, and they go to Allah to give a report to Allah. Allah don't need that, but when Allah asks a question, he asks a question to teach us a lesson. He said to the angels, what are my slaves saying? They're saying, yakuluna, subhanallah, alhamdulillah, Allahu akbar, la ilaha illallah. Allah asks the angels, how do I do they see me? They don't see you. Allah said, what if they saw me? Oh, if they saw you, they'd be stronger in their worship to you. They will make more takbir to you because seeing is believing. And then Allah asked the question, what are they asking for? They're asking for Jannah. Allah said, do they see the Jannah? No, they don't see Jannah. What if they saw it? Oh, if they saw it, they would be more, they would love it more. So what happens, people hear about all oh, what they do to black people, you know, but when you see it, everybody's outraged. I don't know anyone who's not outraged. So that began the, the, you know, the process. So my recommendation is that we educate ourselves yeah, as, as Muslims and other people to learn a little bit about the history, any history, but especially right now in the history of African-Americans, I think that's important. And we're going to learn that black lives do matter. And it has not married, married for so many years. Brother Junaid. Yes. Can I just ask quickly something, yeah. a follow-on on that? Please, uh, Imam please, Siraj, please you mentioned about yes. um, because everybody saw this, um, it, it kind of uh, struck a chord with mm -hmm. much more people. People are coming out on the streets all over the world, not just in America. Um, of course. But, but some people are asking the question, like a lot of people are saying, you know, this is the turning point. This is a critical juncture in the uh, travel or the journey of black America, etc. Um, but somebody was saying, we've seen this before. We've seen this before. Um, black people being killed, demonstrations, protest, uh, protesters coming out in their thousands. And the same in the UK, we've seen several incidences. There's a lot of heat the day after, and then slowly, slowly dies down. Do you think this this incident, this uh, event, is any different? Is there going to be a lasting change from this? Imam, you asked a great question. My answer is twofold. Number one, I told you about 1965. Do you know what happened as a result of those demonstrations? Because there were a lot of protests and demonstrations. 1965, Lyndon Johnson, the president of the United States of America, in August 1965, signed uh, the bill, Voting Rights Bill of 1965. That changed things, right? Um, so those laws were changed and it was enforced. So something happened. Something is going to happen. There's going to be some reform, police reform. Already it's happening right now. People are talking about yeah. it. But, yeah. Sheikh, you're right. You made you, see, you make a, re a really good point because the, the issue now is okay, after this, all of these protests, uh, what's gonna happen, right? You having mar marches and demonstrations. The answer is, what do you want it to happen? The people, what do you want to happen and what are you gonna do about it? Uh, Sheikh, I'm gonna show you something. Um, in the, um, 19, um, let, just give me a second. I wanna get something for you. I'm gonna read this for you. Um, things are changing. There's no question about it. Um, one of the, one of the, you know, 19, about 20 years ago, Muslims were asking the question, are we permitted to vote? Uh -huh. Yeah, I remember ago, that. I remember, remember that, right? <laughs> yeah. Right now, 
not many people are asking, not many Muslims are asking, can we vote? Mm. The question is, you know, there's some, you know, there's something that we can do voting. I'm, I'm looking for something. Um, just give me one second. Um, you can have political change and you can, you can change people, presidents, governors, judges, and things like that with political action. So that's number one. So can, is, is it different? Yes, I've never seen it like this before. We've seen people protesting before, demonstrating, never like this. And, and, and usually it's usually most African-American people. But now when you look, you see people, many white European Americans, right? You see Asians, you see black and brown and red and yellow, you see all these people. So it, it, may, it may signal that there can be a change if we don't allow it to die. And you're right, Sheikh, you, you're 100% right because that's the history. People say, okay, yeah, I've seen this before, here we go again. But I think this, this is a little bit different and most people I talk to, uh, activists think that this is a little bit different. If we, see, cause we learn, you know, there's no real wisdom without experience. We learn, mm -hmm. okay, I've seen mm -hmm. it before, I've, I've participated myself, here we go again. This seems a little bit different. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. That's, uh, that's good to know because uh, that's one of the things that we, we, we see. And for Muslims, whenever we see an incident, uh, a crisis in, in, in the community, the question that we should always be asking, what should be our response? How do we right. respond to this? And that's the question I want to yes. ask you, Imam uh, Siraj. Um, and I think it's good to be quite explicit with this. There's a lot of discussion about the Black Lives Movement. Is this something that Muslims should be supporting or you know, does that take the focus away from all lives and we should be calling for, you know, all lives matter movement and, and, and not really be on, on, this, um, on this agenda. Um, what's your response to this uh, particular um, way of thinking? Um, and also, what's your advice to the Muslim in terms of how we should partake in this, um, in this Kind of during this crisis when we're seeing so much happening in you know, it's a great question it's a great question it's a great question right but let me say a couple of things right i think we have to be careful when we have when we speak to people especially african-americans right so when a black person say you know black lives matter if you say all lives matter it's true no, no one can argue that but it's almost an insult black people because when black people say black lives matter it's a summary of what they really mean there's what they're saying is that black lives matter too you all act like black lives don't matter black lives matter so of course all lives matter of course that's that's the first point and the second point which is which is really great and i and i and i talk to muslims about our agenda i remember we started our masjid 39 years ago and when we started, it was 25 of us African-Americans, all of us African-Americans, 25 years ago. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, 29 years, uh, 39 years ago. And um, every demonstration there was, we were there. I was there. And, you know, you've heard of um, Reverend Sharpton. I was with Reverend Sharpton and all the others. We always demonstrated. But we also, Muslims, my community, any issue there was with Muslims. Bosnia, Syria, Palestine, we're always there. We always participated. So we always participated, right? But what happened, I found myself so much involved in all these demonstrations, I thought I had to, I had to scale back a little bit. Now my community, on an average Juma, we have 1,300 people. And the percentage of African-Americans in my masjid may be 20%, 25% most. Wow. So what we have to do is there must be a rationale in everything we do. There has to be a rationale, right? Because today is Black Lives Matter. Next day is gonna be some immigrants. Next day is gonna be the Chinese Muslims. It's gonna be the Muslims, the Rohingya Muslims. They're gonna be the Muslims in Syria and in Yemen and in Palestine. There's always gonna be issues, right? So therefore we have to make a rationale. What are we gonna do? And this is our rationale. Whoever sees an evil, let him change it with his hand. And that's what our call is, is that, you know, this is not right. It's not right what they're doing. So we have to make a decision to what degree we're going to participate. How will we participate? 
Um, and does it fit our agenda? And yes, if we have to, we, we're called upon to stand up for justice. This is what we're supposed to do. One of the names of Allah is he's the just one. So therefore we see this injustice, we want to do something about it. And, 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 and we have to pick and choose uh, at what point we're going to involve ourselves to what degree. I tell the people in our, communi in our community and part of the Magistrate Shura, yes, you want to um, demonstrate with them, you should, but you have to protect yourself. And if, if you feel that you can do it, you know, in, in the midst of this, um, this COVID-19, then do it, but do it uh, cautiously. So yes, the, the, the small answer is yes, we should do something, but it's a very, very, very big issue. Now, I'm gonna come to uh, the, the root of the problem that I see it. You got, you got a couple minutes? Yes, absolutely. You, yeah, you have a couple? Yeah, yeah. You, you sure? You're yeah, not gonna yeah. stop me? No, no, no. I we, gotta say this is really important. You. No, no, Bismillah. Okay. All right. There's a brother in my in my community. He told me one day. He said, "Imam, I take 29 different medications a day. 29 wow. different medications a day. And this medicine that he takes, these these pills he take, isn't to cure him. No, it's the it's not to cure him. What it does." You know, um, Bernie Sanders, he ran for president uh, of the United States. Yeah. And um, he had a heart attack last, last year. And he said, I should have paid more attention to my symptoms. I should have paid more attention to my symptoms. And we found out, find out that many people, they deal with symptoms enough to cure. Inshallah, there's going to be a, a, a cure for COVID-19, for sure. Because the prophet said, there's no disease without a cure. There's going to be a cure. Inshallah, we find the cure, right? But when a man came to the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, complaining of his brother's stomach, the Prophet said, Isqihi Asalin, give him honey. Why? Because honey is a shafa, honey is a cure. So what happens is that what we do is we deal with symptoms and not dealing with the root of the problem. Justice for black people is a symptom. Let me tell you what, let me give an example how, how Muslims have to think clearly on what we're going to do. Are we going to deal with the symptom or are we going to deal with the root of the problem? I'll give you one example. I don't know about UK, but we have a big drug problem in America. You have a big drug problem there? Yeah. Yes, in, especially in town hamlets and East London. Yeah. Okay. Let me give an example. We have in one year, 70,000 people died of overdose. 70,000 died of overdose. 47,000 people commit suicide in my country. 480,000 Americans die a year as a result of smoking cigarettes. 41,000 Americans die every year secondhand smoke, which means they don't smoke, but other people smoke and they die. Now, Islam goes to the root. If you want to start dealing with drug addiction, it's a big problem. It's a major problem. But what did Islam do? And this is to, to me the lesson, how we deal with the Black Lives Matter and me and, and justice. You got to go to the root of the problem. Let me give an example. When the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, started teaching the people, they had a, they had a problem with um, intoxicants. But notice, 13 years, the first 13 years in Mecca, Allah never mentioned intoxicants once in the Quran. It wasn't until the fourth year after Hijra, Allah mentioned intoxicants for the first time. And consider this, it wasn't Allah who initiated the conversation. Yeah, Muhammad, they're asking you about intoxicants. I ain't, I'm not talking about it. They're asking you, why are they asking you? because there's something in the teaching that makes you feel something. Umar is feeling something, and the believers are, are feeling something. And then, Then Allah reveals, don't approach Salah while you're intoxicated. Still, it's not haram. It's not haram yet. And then finally, Allah reveals, Leave it alone. And it is said, Anas ibn Malik, he was serving Sahaba with alcohol and they heard somebody outside and go check who it is. 
It's a man saying that khamra, alcohol, intoxicants has been prohibited. Immediately, they started pouring down the wine in the streets of Medina. Why? Because the preparation was made. Allah dealt with the root of the problem. And the root of the problem isn't thou shalt not drink alcohol. You see, most Muslims take the Ten Commandments uh, approach. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit. Uh, thou shalt not uh, uh, covet thy neighbors. Thou shalt not do. But that's not the way Allah did it. He didn't do it that way. He didn't say, don't do this, don't do that. What he did, he went to the root. And this is the root. Wallahi, this is the root. Will solve all of the problems. This is Wallahi, this is the root. The Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, was with his companion Mu'ad ibn Jabal. Young man behind, behind the donkey. And the Prophet said, Ya Mu'adri ala ibadi wa ibadi Allah. Ya Mu'ad, do you know what Allah's right over his slaves is? And the right of the slave over Allah? Allah, Allah wa Rasulullah, Allah and his messenger know best. Inna haq Allah ali ibadi it is Allah's right to be worshipped and no one be worshipped besides him. And it is the right of his slave. If they do that, Allah don't punish them. You see, you listen, people think that they're better. I'm better than you. I'm a black man. I'm better than you. But for me as a Muslim, alhamdulillah, Sheikh, Imam, I have many identities. I'm an Aswad. I'm a black man. And you know what? I like being a black man. Why? It's Allah who created you in the womb as he pleased. If Allah pleased to make me a black man, why should I be ashamed to be a black man and a white man or a brown man or a yellow man? Because I know in Allah, Allah doesn't look at your bodies nor your forms. He look at your heart and your deeds. I know. There will not be one black person in gender because they're black. There will not be one white person in hell because they're white. No, it's based on our deeds. And if you wanna, if you wanna be better than someone, be better them in, 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 with them in righteousness and the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the key to everything, what did Allah say? Some sisters came to me. I did a program years ago and a Muslim program and three sisters came to me after the program they looked about uh, college age. And they said, Imam Siraj, they, they, they weren't wearing hijab. Three young sisters not wearing hijab. They said, Imam, we want you to show us from the Quran why we should cover. We don't want no hadith. Show us from Quran why, why we should cover. That's easy. But rather than that, I asked them this question. I said, sisters, do you pray? They said, no, Imam, we don't pray. I said, do you find in Quran you should pray? They said, yeah, the many verses. I said, if you find many verses that you should pray and you're not praying, what makes you think if I show you one verse from Quran that you should cover, you start covering? You see, because Imam, their problem isn't covering. So the father and mother, you gotta cover, you gotta cover, you gotta cover. Covering isn't their problem. So they put their cover, they leave the house, they cover, and one block, they, they take off the hijab. Why? Because you're not dealing with the problem. I don't talk about hijab. I talk about the relationship with Allah. Once they rectify the relationship with Allah, Allah you to cover, you're gonna cover. When the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, was given the commandment from Allah, 50 prayers a day, for the job to be Musa, and I returned with it. He's not arguing with Allah, 50 prayers a day. He's gonna do it until he met Musa. What did Allah ask you? He said, 50 prayers a day. <laughs> Go back to your Lord. Your people can't do that. They can't. So he goes back and forth, back and forth. Allah finally said five. And Musa says, Go back to your Lord. Your people can't do five prayers a day. Was Moses right? But the point that I'm making, this is my point, is that the the brotherhood of islam you know the, the racism are there, are there some muslim who are racist i'm sure they are but in islam there's no racism there 
but that's that's uh, I was actually going to ask you um, and Shafi this uh, question that um, we often quote many verses of the Quran and, and refer to many examples um, from from the teachings of Islam to say that Islam's got nothing to do with racism and we often see that as a problem over there it's not a problem within the Muslim community but it seems that actually during those kind of incidences um, when this discussion happens there is a lot of um, soul searching and introspection that takes place within the Muslim community as well and we realize that actually yes Islam has no place for racism, but within the Muslim community, racism still seems to be quite uh, quite widespread within uh, communities, within um, you know tribalism and so on and so forth. So that is still a reality, wouldn't you say, Sheikh Shafi? While we give Imam Siraj a little break. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, racism is universal. It doesn't belong to white people, black people, Asians. It's it's universal. Every human being has the capacity and the potential to look down on others because they're different, because they're of a different race, caste, or country, or whatever. So without a doubt, Islam, of course, is perfect. Islam is perfect. The Muslims are as close to perfection as they are close to Islam. The but further they are. Behind that, um, Imam Siraj um, and uh, Sheikh Shafi, that we, we say Islam is perfect, there's no racism, and that kind of pushes away that problem from the Muslim no, community. I'm coming to that. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to that. So Islam is not the issue. The, the problem is the Muslim community, the yes. practice, the people, right? So obviously there, there's racism is rife within our communities. Um, I can't speak for different nationalities, but, but the Asian community, Indian subcontinent, we have a deep historical relationship with racism, colorism, as they call it you know, the preference of light skin over dark skin. This is embedded in our history, the caste system, etc. So it definitely exists and we have to root it out. And, and, and it is soul searching. It's about looking into our own behavior, action, language, re-educating ourselves, being sensitive, and ensuring that we don't perpetuate the same very thing that people are fighting against without a doubt without a doubt let me just um quickly take a few comments uh, that have been coming in matthew rahman chowdhury says assalamu alaikum uh, to imam siraj he remembers you to um, when you first came to um, lsc london school of economics uh, in the 90s so he gives his salam hussein shifar says uh, i was inspired by imam siraj wahaj muhammad amin says how's the imam's health these days very imam good alhamdulillah but i want to say something what imam shafi said can you do you, i know you want to ask me Man. I know you are you trying to get rid of me. I know you're trying to get rid of me. No, 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 I no. Want to get rid of me. Let me tell you in. something that, that I think is we have to make a distinction, right? Between a, a person's prejudice, right? And a person's mm -hmm. preference, right? Like uh, uh compared to a person like institutionalized racism, like you know, like I'm saying that you control the lives of a person. Like Martin Luther King said, he who gets behind in a race must forever remain behind or run faster than the man up front. Now, it's, if, if you don't like me as an individual, I don't like you because you're black. Okay, fine, right? But, but you not liking me as an individual because I'm black is not gonna get me arrested. It's not gonna stop me from getting a job. But when you have power over me, you know, and you're a white policeman over, over me and you can kill me, and that's a that's a that's a major difference. The other point I want to make, um, uh, Junaid, yeah. uh, there is a um, uh, uh, a store that I go to, a Muslim store in my neighborhood, and I've been going there for years. And one day I went in there, the first time I saw I saw a sign that I never saw before. It says no alcohol sold here, <clears throat> and I was very uh, very happy. It's a Muslim store because every Muslim store that I know. Every Muslim store in New York City, except a few exceptions, they sell alcohol. Is alcohol permitted? No, right? So when I saw this sign, no alcohol sold here, I was very happy. And then I looked carefully, uh, there were some small things. It says no alcohol sold here on Sundays hmm. before 2 p.m. So what am I saying? Is drinking alcohol permitted? No. Are there Muslims who drink alcohol? I'm sure they are. Mm. Are, are. Are we allowed to take intoxicants? Of course not. 
a man during the time of the prophet. He some big problem named Abdullah, always getting drunk. So I I I don't think it's a it's a, it's a it's an excuse by saying perfect Islam imperfect Muslims. I think that's that's very valid. Mm. So we have to continue. But let me get I got some good news for you. I got some good news for you. This generation here of Muslims is different. I know so many African American Muslims, Black Muslims, who go to school with Muslim girls from the subcontinent. Many of them want to get married. And their parents say, no, 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 you can't do that. No, no, no. But this generation here is different. And I want you to consider when the children of Israel was given the commandment to go to the Holy Land and they refused to do it and they wandered in the, in the desert for 40 years. They wandered for 40 years and that meant that that generation died out. Muslims, we have some problems and, and we have to deal with the internal contradictions. There's no question about that. But I think it's important that people understand what our traditions say. Imam Siraj, <clears throat> just, just following on your previous um, beautiful kind of answer, the long answer about Islam being the solution, it being the proper diagnosis to the problem. Um, what does that say in terms, because I'm not hearing much of that. What I'm hearing in America in the cross-faith discussions is about justice, equality, not much about faith, but the, the equality and justice that must be fought for, the civil rights movement, the social justice movement, you know, critical race theory, because it's a perpetual um, structural racism you know, the white man, the oppressor, the system is oppressive, we're the oppressed. And it's it's a kind of uh, infinity war, if you like. You know, it's never going to change. And therefore, we must consistently, perpetually fight the system. But you seem to be saying, no, that's, that's the symptom. This is the solution. Um, how does that speak to non-Muslims in, in this fight? I am glad you asked the question. I'm so happy you asked the, asked the question. Can I be honest with you, perfectly honest with you? I think the Muslims in general have dropped the ball. We have, we have dropped the ball. See, because what we do is that, you know, uh, there's a lot of fires and we're running out trying to put our fires and deal with the issue, right? And when you look at the Ummah, the best Ummah, no Muslim would argue. The best of my ummah, my generation. No one, argue, no one can argue that. See, what was that generation? What did that generation look like? What did that generation look like? All of them. All of them were converts. All of them were converts. Every one of them. Consider this. Who was the, like, I asked you, you have Muslim parents, right? Yeah. You have Muslim grandparents, right? Yeah. I'm the first Muslim, I'm the first generation Muslim. I had nobody in my family. I'm the first one, alhamdulillah, now I have children, Muslim. I have grandchildren that are Muslims. So I'm the first generation. When you look at the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon them, they were all converts. None of them had Muslim parents. Can I tell you the first one who had a Muslim parents? Look at the hadith of Aisha, right? It, it goes like this. And Aisha, Umul Mu'minin, from Aisha, the mother of the believers. Why? Allah says, and the wives of the Prophet are mothers. But when you look at the history of the hadith, look what it says. And Aisha, Umul Mu'minin, Ummi Abdullah. Ummi Abdullah, Aisha had no children. What do you mean the mother of Abdullah? Because her sister Asma had a baby named Ab uh, uh, Abdullah ibn Zubir. He was the first Muslim baby born in the Ummah. So we, we, we do da'wah. In, in our community, we do da'wah. Um, to me, uh, Muslim communities have lost that major impetus of da'wah. So in the, the, in the early Ummah of the Prophet, peace and blessed be upon him, Number one, massive dawah. Go from Abu Bakr and Umar and Abdurrahman ibn Auf and Saad ibn Rabi, all of them, and they did dawah. That was the job, man. 
We don't do no dawah. We don't spend no money for no dawah. We don't call people to what we're supposed to be calling the people to. So we run around putting out fires. We run around giving people 20, 29 different medications. But I'm saying to you that I have rededicated myself as much dawah as I do, I do more now. You see, because of, if an organization called Black Lives Matter, they go there and they have an agenda and they're doing their agenda. So what about my agenda? So two things I will show you about the early, the best Umar. Number one, they were converts. You want to use another word, revert, whatever you, I know some, some will say, oh, Prophet wasn't no convert. Okay, I got it, I got it. Got it. <laughs> but you know, Sheikh, you know the other thing is, that first Umar, that model, many of them were young. They were young. You could say, Maybe even, I don't know to say majority, I don't know numbers like that, but I know that some of the most prominent Muslims are, 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 are what a youth. So what happened? We've seen something uh, different happening now. Youth are leaving the masjid. Just like the church and the synagogue. The youth left the church and the synagogue. Why? Because, you know, the youth in many masjids is a, a footnote. But now, my, my community, you know, we have a youth director. Every masjid should have a youth director. They have to, you have to. You have to bring them back. Sheikh, there's a masjid in Detroit, Detroit, Michigan. They call it the oldest masjid in Detroit. That term, oldest masjid, has two meanings. Number one, it means it's the first masjid. It's the first masjid, and it is. But oldest masjid could also mean literally the oldest masjid. Shake that masjid, I know that masjid. The average age of the participant in that masjid is 80 years old. SubhanAllah. Where's the youth? SubhanAllah, where's the youth? And I'm looking around, I go around, when I go to the masjid, I always look, I look for the, I look for the converts and I look for the youth. And I'm saying, I agree with you, Shake. I'm with you 100%. I think that if we spend more time on dawah, and, and, and letting people understand the, 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 the essence of this beautiful faith, we are a major difference. And that's what I'm doing now, Sheikh. I'm, I'm focusing more ever than I did before in Dawah. MashaAllah, you're, you're, you were always in, inspirational in Dawah, and you still are, MashaAllah, MashaAllah. And, and I think, uh, you know, we, we said, Alhamdulillah, you've been able to dedicate consistently um, your time and your effort in the in the field of dawah. So that was one of the other areas uh, that we wanted to kind of explore with you. A um, lot of people listening. Um, I'm getting a lot of comments of people who uh, know you from the time that they were inspired to get involved in dawah. And you know, when you get a chance, please, you know, read through some of those uh, those comments. What's your advice to the people that are listening to the to the audience in terms of engaging and dedicating to this? work of dawah because one of the things that we see is that people are now busier with family with their professional life with you know personal duties and responsibilities often it's very very difficult to commit and dedicate to the field of dawah in the way that you have inspired and you have demonstrated that you you know it is possible and it's the duty and responsibility that muslims should be doing so what's your advice in terms of you know um calling people to engage in this um, work of that junaid every day i have seen over the years every day the average muslim have two or three different uh opportunities to give dawah in a very in a very limited way and i'll give an example uh, i was on a plane uh, one day and the plane had landed and people were getting out. And I noticed there was an elderly white woman. She was standing there next to her seat. And I went to her and said, Madam, do you need help? She said, yes, my, my luggage. Can you help me my, get my luggage on the overhead? So I went and pulled it down. And I said, would you like for me to take it out of the plane for you? She said, no, thank you so much, right? You should have seen her face. Thank you so much. People were ignoring her. So I walk off the plane and a young white woman said to me, says, sir, I saw what you did. I saw what you did, and I want to thank you. And you know what? I didn't. I didn't do that, like to get brownie points. You know what I'm saying? Hey, I, look, I'm a Muslim. Look what I did. No, I did it because this is this is who we are. This is who we are. But you will find out every day you get an opportunity to dawah. I'll give you another point. Have you ever been? You ever read a book, and somebody like 
behind you reading what you're reading. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like people who do that. I'm reading. Don't look at. Don't be looking what I'm reading, right? But one day I'm on a plane and I'm reading some Islamic literature, and the guy next to me was trying to look. So what I did, I kind of turned around to let him see. He said to me, he says, "Is that is that Islam?" I said, "Yes, sir." I railed him in. And we started talking about Islam. Don't sit next to me on a plane. Don't you sit next to me on a plane. Because I may start talking to you. In a natural way. Not intrusive. But you will find out there are ways that you can engage the people. You know, everybody, you know, whatever time you have. Maybe you can write a post, write something, write an article, um, talk to somebody. Um, you know, so I think that we have to start rethinking that this is an objective of our, of ours. This is what we do. This is what we're all about. And we will see that there will people will come, they they come running to Islam. I mean, we have open house in our masjid and seven people take Shahada in an open house. I mean, uh, brother gave, you talked in a, in a prison, 25 people take Shahada. So this happens all the time. Um, so just make it as a priority. And you will see. And I think what happens is people feel nervous about it. You know, they feel inadequate. But think about it. Allah gave a couple of verses from Quran. He didn't have the whole Quran at the time. And whatever little bit he had, he went giving it. That's our job. That's our job. It's what we are, we are, we are ashamed and we're afraid. Everybody else, they're not afraid. That's what they do. Black Lives Matter. They have an agenda. One day you should look and see the agenda of Black Lives Matter. That movement, they got an agenda. They got an entire agenda. We got an agenda too. And 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 the agenda for us is that we we are we trying to help the people. We're trying to make life better for everyone. This is this to their advantage. You know, everybody take advantage of these youngsters. Do you know that what's the legal age of smoking cigarettes in, in UK? What's the legal age? 16, uh, 16, I think. Are you serious? Are you serious? Yeah. Are you kidding? Is that high? 16? And then that's, that's very low. In the United States, it's 18. In the United States, you legally, you can't buy cigarettes until you come to 18 years old. But my point that I'm making, that 90... I'm just on this, uh, just in case um, it's, not, it's not absolutely correct. But Shafi, okay, okay. Yeah. But, but, but yeah. my point, 90% yeah. of the cigarette smokers in the United States start before the age of 18 90 percent okay mm -hmm. so what am i saying there's somebody targeting these people you're not born designed to smoke cigarettes that's number one number two what's the legal age for drinking alcohol uk legal age is 18 i think it's 18. 18. 18. so i've just got a message uh, someone just commented first of october 27 uh, 2007 the legal age for the purchase of tobacco in England and Wales was raised from 16 to 18. So it was 16. Okay. Cool. Not being raised to 18. okay. Alcohol, what's the legal age, you say? I'm pretty sure it's 18. In the United States, it's 21, right? 21 is the legal age of drinking alcohol in the United States. You can't sell it to, you go to jail for selling alcohol to a person, right, under 21. But the fact, the fact of the matter that the alcohol, alcohol industry depends on underage drinkers for the industry 20 something percent of the alcohol sold in the united states is sold to underage drinkers what's my point there are people targeting the youth mm. they, they they're going to to exploit them we're targeting people to help them malcolm x look at malcolm x he goes to prison Malcolm X, he, you read the autobiography of Malcolm X, what he used to do and drugs and all the things. He becomes Muslim. His life has changed. He changed the lives of a lot of people. Inshallah. Imam Siraj, one of the things that we used to say all the time when we used to listen to your talks, um, attend your lectures in the in the 90s um, uh, and in the early 2000s is, you know, there's a, never a lecture of Imam Siraj Bukhaj that is complete unless there's a story of his travel. And something in the airplane, in the airplane or, or the airport. So, <laughs> alhamdulillah, we, we managed to get that today um, as well in this kind of show. Um, 
Iman Siraj, you, you were kind of very successful and you were recognized for your efforts in fighting drugs and crime in, in New York. Um, and, uh, you know, this was something that was very well kind of known because of the way you've tra you transformed um, that community. And you said you got a youth director in your masjid as well. What, you know, what would be your advice in terms of what, what's that strategy that we need to take in order to reach out to the youth? I think the main thing, uh, Junaid, is that to show that we care. Um, a couple of years ago, I was in the West Coast and I went to a hotel called Doubletree Hotel. And by the way, I don't know, you have Doubletree there in UK? Doubletree Hotel? Uh, not, not, sure. not that well known. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to No? Well, the Doubletree Hotel was famous for their cookies. They have, you know, when you when you give you some some of these cookies, well, lie the best cookies in the world. And um, but anyway, I, I went to my room it's in California, and and every room had a, a card, and the card said, "When you care, it shows. When you care, it shows." And I would argue, when you don't care, it shows. You mm -hmm. see, the Muslim youth have been neglected. All, all most most masters, they're, they're neglected, and we don't pay a lot of t attention to them, and then they they leave. Uh, the, when I used to go to programs in Washington D.C., there was a young some young Muslims, all teenage age, ages. They would come to my program, and then after the program, I don't care how late it was, they would take me to a Muslim uh, restaurant. We would hang out together. I talked to them. I engaged them. So I I loved them. They loved me, and only because I cared about them, right? Uh, one of the brothers, his name is Ali, he moved to California. This is Washington, D.C., moved to California. And recently he came to visit me. And he said, Imam, I hate going to the masjid, especially the Juma prayer. I said, why, Ali? He said, because they don't, they don't, they don't relate to me. It doesn't relate. And so a lot of times when, when the youth go to the masjid, it's like the, the khatib, khatib, they're not speaking to them. They're not speaking their language. They don't hang out with them. Oh, I do. I play basketball with them. Yeah, I still play basketball. You know what basketball is, Janae? You know yeah. what that is? Yeah, yeah. We you know, know how to play that? No, you can't play that. You play. You play soccer. You. Play, I'm sorry. You play football. football. I'm sorry. Football. Uh, Shake. You play basketball? No, no, I don't. No, right? Soccer, soccer, football. Okay. Well, let me soccer. Okay, good, good. Let me tell you something. I still play it, and when I go to the cities, I play the shabab. I still play. I still hang out with them. And but my point is, they got to see, man, that you care and you got to talk their language. You got to talk their language. You got to relate to them. And I'm saying we just don't we just don't put the uh, the energy. We don't put the time. Uh, uh, we don't not not on a consistent level. So we have to do that. I think it's it's it's, it's, it's critical because who are we gonna who are we gonna hand the baton to? Soon our master to be like that master in Detroit. But as person is 80 years old, we don't want to be like that. We want to keep on growing uh, and keep on keep on developing. Imam Siraj, you, you, you mentioned that people don't engage much in da'wah anymore. But over the last, say, 10, 15 years, there's been this huge explosion in growth in what some people call the Islam industry. Lots of conferences, institutes, celebrity speakers. There's a big, big kind of um, momentum there. But I guess a lot of people attend those things or listen to talks on YouTube or online. In other words, a lot of people are consumers of Islam, uh, audience members of Islam, but not many doing the actual work like, like it used to be done in maybe in the late 80s and the 90s where dawah and going out there in terms of people to people changing your communities, etc. Why do you think that shift happened? Sheikh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but who know this, that we have to get back to it. You know, we, we saw something that worked, as you said rightly, right? And we have to ask ourselves the question, how did, how did we get off it? What went wrong? Uh, because Islam is it's a whole, it's not just listening to a lecture, but it's a whole routine. It's coming to the masjid. You know, um, in, in, in the masjids, subhanAllah, um, at Fajr prayer, there's a brother who's the second in charge of, of security. His name is Khalil. And you know what I look for every morning? This is three to Fajr. And I talk to them, you know, in, every day. And, um, and he says, yeah, Imam, what I do after the prayer, 
I take them for breakfast. That's part of, you know, that's part of what we do. So I, I went in my pocket and gave him some money. I said, listen, I want to put this in the breakfast, uh, you know, uh, pot. Um, so when you see them coming to the masjid, right, it's not just elderly coming to the masjid, but it's the youth. Um, and um, we have um, different programs. And I think, Sheikh, is a matter of, 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 of making it a priority. Um, there's an imam, African-American imam uh, in Harlem, Imam Talib, a good friend of mine. He was invited by an immigrant community to their national uh, organizational meeting. And they, they wanted him to see they were doing. And so they wrote on the board uh, 10 priorities for this immigrant organization, number one to 10. And the one was the most important priority. 10 was the least. And they said, Imam Talib, what do you think about that? He said, you know, it's interesting. He said, what you have as priority number one is priority number 10 in my community. And what you have as priority number 10 is priority number one in my community. So it's a matter of priority. It's a matter of us, number one, getting our priority right, and then creating a program to help us to bring about that, that, that priority. I think we lost, we lost focus. We just lost focus. So we got to get back to that. We got to get the youth back to the masjid. And you got to make it, you got to make it, um, Listen, the prophet did a peace and blessing be upon him. Some Sahaba was 10, 12 years old. 10, 12 years old when they became Muslim. I mean, I mean, a lot of them. You know, Anas ibn Malik, 10 years old. His mother brings him to the prophet to serve the prophet, peace and blessing be upon him. He said, I served the prophet for 10 years. He never said uff to me. Aisha radiallahu anha, young. Umar ibn, uh, Abdullah ibn Umar, all of these, young, they're young. Um, uh, 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 Ibn Abbas, Abdullah Ibn Abbas, they're young. I mean, they're unbelievably young. So what happened, we got away, we got away from that, you know? And I'm not sure if it's the school. You know, Sheikh, you know 87% of the population in, in the United States go to what we call public school. I don't know if you call it state school yeah, or whatever, we, we, public we school. We call it state school, yeah. Okay, good. And um, 7% seven, 7 um, uh, go to a private school and 3% they go to um, homeschooling. So, so what happens, I think what happens when education becomes, became mandatory, maybe our children go into public school. Now, according to Columbia University study, they say 10% of the students in New York City uh, of the Muslims uh, are the school 10% of Muslims. So when you think about um, that 5% of the Muslims don't go to private school. I mean, 95% of Muslims go to public school. What's happening? So in those days, they were trained by the, by, by the Muslims. So we got to just try to figure it out. We got to figure it out. It's a, it's, a, it's a youth issue. We should put it on our agenda, how to bring the youth back to the masjid. Inshallah. And uh, Sheikh Shafi is a trustee of... Uh one of the largest masjids in Europe. So inshallah, he'll take that message on board, um, his, his, his board inshallah. And, and already uh, the team is doing some great work um, at the East London Mosque and the London Muslim Center. Oh yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So mashallah, that can be taken forward. Unfortunately, we're coming far, um, you know, to, towards the end of the show. Um, and I've no, not the no, chance. I don't <laughs> yeah. know, I don't know, no, no, I don't want to do. No, we don't want to end uh, end it either. And I've, I've hardly asked any of the questions that I had uh, initially planned to ask. Um, um, so we will definitely need to have Imam Siraj back um, in one of the shows again. Definitely, definitely, um, definitely. But as we um, kind of can wrap... I come? Can I come in person? Can I come Absolutely, in yes. yes. Even better. That is over. Your invitation from Faith Inspire is open, inshallah, and 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 we would love to to host you here in in the UK, inshallah. Um, this this show is brought to uh, the uh, you know is all arranged by Faith Inspire and one of the things that Faith Inspire aims to do is inspire individuals to become change makers um, in society. So I take this uh, role of bringing positive change and contributing to society, giving back to society in whichever way they can. So um, what would be your as a closing remarks in terms of your advice to our listeners who want to be change makers? Um, you know what would be your advice to them? You know what Martin Luther King Jr. said? He said, every one of you are either a hammer or an anvil. And what that means, he said, either you will shape the society or be shaped by the society. 
we have to make a decision as Muslims that we're going to be hammers, you know, and, and it has to be with our, um, our, our faith, our confidence. I feel that honestly, Muslims have lost confidence. We lost confidence in ourselves. And um, like with me, I'm 100% sure that Islam is the, the right way for humanity. Right now, I, I look at what's going on, um, COVID-19, I look at what's going on with uh, um, black people being oppressed and all, all of that, and I come with the conclusion, Islam is the answer. We have to do everything that we can. We need a few good men and women to make a difference. And we have to put in our heart that, you know what? I, I you know, really honestly, Junaid, I really love people. Honestly, I really love people. And, and I remember the prophet, this is my last word. This is my last word I'm going to say. Um, he, he gave us a, um, uh, a, um, a litmus test of leadership. He said, um, The best of your leaders are those whom you love and they love you. You pray for them and they pray for you. And the worst of your leaders are those whom you hate and they hate you. You curse them and they curse you. So you got to love the people. You can't call the people that you don't love them. You don't care about them. And I honestly care about the people. And I would say to the Muslims, care about all the people, care about the black people, the yellow people, the, the men and the women and all the people. You know what? Even those people have weaknesses. I remember the prophet said that there was a prophet beaten so much by his people that he began to bleed. He wiped the blood from his face and Allahumma Allah forgive my people because they don't know. These people they don't know. So let's teach them. Those are my closing remarks, inshallah. And apologies to all our viewers for not being able to take all your questions or comments. But I think one comment uh, that nicely summarizes um, and uh, follows on from what Imam Siraj has just said is from Darun Mack, who says that it's such an honor for all involved with Faith Inspire and everyone else who's listening to have the company of Imam Siraj, truly a giant in our ummah, and love you, Sheikh. So the people love Thank you. you. Um, Alhamdulillah. <coughs> khairan, um, Imam Siraj, it's been Thank such you. an honor to have you. Zakla um, khair, Imam Siraj. Thank you, ma'am. Good to see you. May Allah continue to bless you. I make dua for you and your family and the community. Amen. Thank you very much uh, to all our audience for um, listening. Um, and inshallah, we'll be back in two weeks' time for another episode of Faith Unlocked. And hopefully, um, again, in one of the future shows, we'll have Imam Siraj Wahaj. Jazakumullah khairan. Stay safe and keep us safe. Thank you. 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 Thank you